Hey, we are so excited that you're here tonight. Um, my name is Connor Clark. I am on staff with InterVarsity here at William & Mary. Um, and usually I'm like, I don't really need to introduce myself. Everyone knows me, but I actually look at and see faces I don't know. So I'm really excited you're here. Uh, we're really glad that you came. And um, every semester uh, we get to meet and explore with new people. And we're really glad that you chose to be with us here tonight. Uh, we don't take it lightly. Um, and thank you, Basola, for that awesome Urbana testimony and for uh, bringing back what we, a lot of us learned there. There were about 21, 22 of us that went to Urbana in St. Louis right after Christmas, uh, came back on New Year's Day, um, back to wherever. I guess most of us came back to Virginia, but um, some people did. But uh, Urbana was a really impactful time if you haven't caught the drift. Um, and a lot of what I learned at Urbana, uh, I am excited to incorporate here tonight. Uh, I was really excited when Evangeline and the larger team uh, presented this idea, let's, let's do a series going back to Jesus. Uh, we do a lot of different stuff here in our school, we talk about a lot of different things, but let's spend the first chunk of this school year, this semester, I mean, uh, focusing back in on the why, like what is actually um, going on with this guy, Jesus, and the gospel. Um, and so I wanted to start with uh, a quote from Urbana that really impacted me. Um, it was from the very first session. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, what a week this is going to be. And at the very first talk at Urbana, Ruth Hubbard, who's the director, she asked all of us, is the Jesus you know worthy of your trust, of your allegiance, of your love? Or have you been disappointed by a pawn of power, Jesus, abused by an angry Jesus, abandoned by a flavor of the day, Jesus. And then she encouraged us to write down a list of characteristics of the Jesus that we would reject, that we cannot trust, and then compare it to the actual Jesus that we see come to life in the scriptures. And that Jesus that we reject might actually be a fake Jesus, a false Messiah, a Jesus made more in our image than actually in God's. And I'm sitting there, and I'm struck to the core, and I'm asking myself, have I started to follow a fake Jesus, a Jesus that I've idealized or made up in my head or that actually looks more like me? Have I spent my life being tricked into this idea that I've been following a, a Jesus when I'm pledging my allegiance to, and it actually, that Jesus ends up being more like a nationalistic Jesus, or more of a prophet-for-yourself Jesus, or more of even a cartoon character Jesus. Now, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, and uh, my parents liked finding fun Christian household media for us to watch. <laughs> and so, one of the shows that was always on in my house when we were a kid was this show, Bible Man. Woo! <laughs> and so, Bible Man, uh, let's, let me break this down for you. So, Bible Man was basically like a split between a superhero and someone from Star Wars, which was like my dream as a kid, because I love superheroes and I love Star Wars. So you put a superhero Bible man with a lightsaber, and that was the coolest thing that I could ever find. Um, and so he would like, he would have this mansion, it was very Bruce Wayne, so he'd have this mansion and he'd go down the thing, and then like, it would have this montage of all the things flying onto him, the breastplate of righteousness, and the, the you know, all the, <laughs> 
big picture of the idealized Christian guy was wrapped up in a Bible man. Uh, he had a sidekick, he had villains he fought. I actually watched part of an episode this week in like nostalgia of this. It was actually really funny. It's it's so 90s nostalgia. Like, it is the cheesiest thing you've ever seen. Uh, but I loved it. And I loved Bible Man. And I wanted so much to be like Bible Man that when Halloween came, I got to
to get to know the real Jesus apart from the scriptures that are primarily seen through the gospel stories, which when you open the Bible would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the retelling of Jesus' life. And part of rediscovering the real Jesus is constantly going back to the basics. And we recognize that as this community, not everyone has grown up in a church background, not everyone even knows maybe who Jesus is. And so we acknowledge coming from all different backgrounds, it is so important to recognize that we've all learned about Jesus in different ways. And so tonight, we are going to walk through the major events of Jesus' whole life, his qualities, the narrative, who the true Jesus is. And we want to begin this semester starting out with a laser-focused image. This is Jesus, and those are the distractions and the lies. We want to start the semester by focusing on the actual story. And I wanted to walk us through four main parts of Jesus' life. Now, sidebar, imagine if you were tasked with uh, going through a whole person's life, let alone the whole Son of God's life, in 20 minutes. It would be very hard. So, I just want to lay the disclaimer at the beginning, saying that I recognize that I'm going to miss a lot. I'm picking four things in this whole guy's life. And so, there's going to be a lot of stuff that I'm going to skip over. And by picking a particular piece of scripture or sitting in a place for a minute, I'm not saying it's more important than another part, but I'm saying it's all important. These are some important parts. And if a particular section really interests you, write down like where it is found in scripture and go back this week and spend some time in it. Because we are going to move through fast. I timed this talk earlier, and you're, you don't want to know how long it is. So, I'm going to jump right into it. We're going to talk tonight about four aspects of Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. Oh, ah, you see? Okay, leave it. Go back to the blank. All right, we're going to talk about Jesus as a child. We're going to talk about Jesus as a healer. We're going to talk about Jesus as dead. We're going to talk about Jesus as king. And so in an attempt to make this a little more creative, I'm going to need seven volunteers throughout this talk who are good at standing up and talking loud. So Priscilla, you can now switch to the scripture. Priscilla's going to stand up, and we are going to start with Luke 1, 26 through 38. And this is the divine messenger, right? This is an angel coming to Mary, a virgin woman who is set to give birth to God incarnate, God with us, a human embodiment of the creator of the universe. And Priscilla is going to read this out loud and proud for us, real loud. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, That's great. Yeah. <laughs> In the
was to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Awesome. Thank you. So this is the beginning of it all, right? We're coming right back from Christmas, so maybe you read this, maybe you went to a church service and read this, right? Uh, but as I was reading this text this week, as I was watching the birth of the Jesus, the Son of God, I noticed three things. And the first thing I noticed was that Jesus was divinely foretold. Uh, Jesus' appearance on earth was not an accident. Jesus was born into a family in the lineage of King David, which was fulfilling one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Jesus was divinely conceived in the womb of a virgin. This was not random. This was not an accident. Jesus came into this world on purpose, and Jesus is very clearly of God, and eventually clearly God himself. And the second thing I noticed was that Jesus was a human baby. When Jesus was born, he was a human child. He could have come anyway, right? We're talking God coming down the earth to live with us. He could have come flying in with clouds and thunder and lightning going everywhere, like making a triumphal display of his power, making people believe that he was God, and yet he came as the most vulnerable thing you could, a baby. And Jesus embraced our personhood as a man by entering this world just like everybody else, right? He's increasing his vulnerability by being born as a child. And then what's really cool is right after he's born, Jesus invites people to him. Now, of course, he's a baby, so he's not doing all the inviting. But the people are coming towards him, right? In the midst of this vulnerable moment, from the moment he's born, people are invited to his mission, right? The shepherds are invited by the angels to seek the coming king, right? And we see in the different, we see in Matthew that the Magi come from the east, right? Bearing gifts for this king that they've seen in the stars that they have foretold as the coming Messiah. The poorest shepherds are invited, the richest kings are invited, and everyone in between. From Jesus' first day on earth, his life was of invitation. Come, come into here. And so tonight, you maybe think that the Jesus you know, the Jesus that you see, isn't all that divine. Maybe the Jesus you know is so divine that it's hard to even see him as a human. And maybe the Jesus you know pushes people away. But right at the start of Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus is fully human, fully divine, fully God, and draws all people close to him. So that's part one. Jesus has baby. And we're going to jump from Luke to Mark. It's a different gospel story, a different author. And I want us to look at how Jesus is a healer. In this case, Jesus heals the man born blind, and through this miraculous healing encounter, the disciples start to notice that he is the Son of God. Who wants to read this one? Campbell! All right, loud and proud.
So, <laughs> one of the things I'm immediately struck with in this passage is that Jesus has power over the physical. In this instance, we see Jesus healing a man that has been blind, and he uses control of the physical to perform a miraculous healing. And we see him do this with person after person in the Bible. Uh, he raised the man to life. Uh, he healed people. He can control nature and the weather. Um, he, uh, where was I? He drove out demons and impure spirits. Jesus has power that no one else historically has ever been said to have. And another important part about this passage here is that Jesus cares for the marginalized. Even though Jesus has all the power in the world, all authority to heal, to create, uh, to alter things, he never once uses that power for himself. Jesus is constantly on the lookout for people in need of healing, in need of love, in need of grace. People that are most likely on the margins. Jesus spends his whole life caring for the poor, the sick, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the weak, the ethnic minority, the sexual minority. Jesus also heals and cares for the wealthy, too. But only we see when the wealthy approach him with humility and faith. Jesus spends more time in the Gospels with the marginalized than with the powerful or the elite. As I read that in the Gospels, I ask myself, why does our culture value our religion or theology to be one that leads us to power? When we so often see Jesus laying that down for the sake of the marginalized. What I love about this is that right after the healing, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples in a really cool way. Jesus lets those that are close to him know him. When he asks the disciples who people say they are, say he is, uh, they get all sorts of answers, right? When he asks them who they think he is, Peter declares, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And Jesus seems to affirm this, right? While also telling the disciples not to let the revelation be told, right? Uh, he told them to keep it to themselves. Why? Jesus knows that the people in the crowds were, were looking for a king, a, a quick fix, a healer. Uh, he wanted, they, the people wanted someone that would lead the Jewish people to power, to authority, to freedom from Rome, but that wasn't actually the plan Jesus had for the world. Jesus wants people, all of us, to approach him with faith uh, and with humility. He doesn't want people to discover, him, to discover him as a result of a big flashy show or a really impressive speech. So he asks the disciples not to share who he is. He creates this secrecy so that people are driven through curiosity uh, and a desire to know through faith to lead them closer to figure out who Jesus is for themselves. And here in the disciples' interactions, they're starting to get it. And when they say, we think you're the Messiah, he says, yes, right? When you grow closer to Jesus, he will tell you who he is. He will not stay distant, but he will draw you. And so similar questions arise about our faith, Jesus. Do we see Jesus as a weak historical figure? figure? Or do we see Jesus as one who only benefits the religious, the social, the powerful elite? Or maybe we see Jesus as just someone who's distant. You might be seeing a false Jesus. 
Because here in Mark, we see a Jesus who is powerful, who cares for the marginalized, and who lets people know him with great intimacy. So then we move on to the next part, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus, which is probably the most pivotal and centerpiece of the gospel story. Without the death and resurrection, we would, there would be no hope for us in this narrative. We would have no way to restore our broken relationship with God. And so, and for this section, we need three people. Who wants to be the first? All right, Erica. Just that top one for me. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Who else? Ooh, no. Later, knowing that everyone had now finished, now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk on the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Awesome. One more. Jesus' power. 
is that he is inviting people on the margins back into this story even after he's raised from the dead. Disciples were making this story up. They wouldn't have chosen for the first witness to be a woman. But yet this is the first sign of Jesus making all things new and right. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope of our future with the Lord, not leaving us behind in fear, but leading us forward with hope. So if you think about the Jesus you know, if the Jesus you know doesn't care about women, then that might be a fake Jesus. If Jesus you know is, is unrelatable to your pain or suffering, that might be a fake Jesus. If the Jesus you know is dead and gone, you're following a fake Jesus. Not only has Jesus conquered death and the world, but he now reigns victorious on the throne, which leads us to my favorite part, Jesus as king. And so at Urbana, we studied Revelation. We spent the whole week in Revelation. Oh, okay. At first I thought Lantern was on fire, and I was like, that stinks for y'all after all that week. <laughs> Who can read this text from Revelation 1? John's vision of Jesus in all of his glory. Catherine, yeah, please. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Thank you. Y'all, Jesus' work is complete. When he says, I am the first and the last, the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, he is not inviting speculation into whether or not something amazing will have to happen. He is not opening up the door to if there's another way around our restoration, our restoration to God. He is declaring that the work has been finished. He has won. He reigns victorious forever and ever. And his work on the cross is complete and necessary. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is triumphantly beautiful. The image that John gets here is the vision of the reigning Jesus. He has a golden sash around his chest, which marks his completeness. His hair is as white as snow, signifying purity. His features are all glowing in radiance. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, which signify the seven known planets of this world. Right? He's got a double-edged sword coming to his mouth. In his weapon is the truth, his faithful witness, the word of his testimony. The Jesus that John sees uh, is beautiful is triumphant and is a king on his throne. And from this moment on, from the cross, the resurrection, from that moment on, he is the reigning Lord of creation. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see images of this reigning king, first hearing the image of Jesus, then the slain lamb, the crucified king, sitting on the throne, reigning over all creation, everyone worshiping him, 
crying, holy, holy, holy. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades, only reinforcing the complete victory that he has over death. Jesus sits on the throne, and because we finally can know him, we can bow to him in faith. This, friends, this is the real Jesus. The Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. Not a folktale, not through political conversion, I mean coercion, not through fear, but through the Gospels. And tonight, your application might be to surrender that false idea of Jesus that you've been holding on to. That aspect of Jesus that's been haunting you. You might have to surrender that fake Jesus and adopt the true, real Jesus and his narrative into your life. So I want to summarize really quickly um, some of who Jesus isn't to who Jesus is based on those four movements of the gospel. So tonight you might walk out of here still thinking, Jesus is too holy for me. Maybe someone shamed you away from Jesus because of your sin or in the name of traditionalism. The real Jesus, though, became human for you. He invites you into a deep relationship with him. There is nothing that you have done that can separate you from Jesus' invitation into relationship. Tonight, you may still be leaving here thinking that Jesus or Jesus' followers only use power for self-gain and promotion. But as we see in the Gospels, Jesus always uses his power for others, caring for the marginalized. Jesus would never be used as a pawn of power or as a way to abuse others or as an excuse to wall ourselves off in fear. But the real Jesus runs to the vulnerable to care for them. You may still be thinking that Jesus is distant and careless, that Jesus can't care about the suffering in the world because if he did, he would have done something by now. That Jesus is off living in the clouds somewhere. He can't care about my life, my hurt, my pain, my suffering, my shame. But the cross shows us that Jesus did suffer with us, that he experienced the worst the world has to offer. He felt that pain along with you, and he cares about the injustices of this world. And in the midst of that caring about the world's problems, the resurrected Jesus knows you. Just like he calls out Mary, he says your name. Or you may be leaving here still thinking that Jesus is weak and unreliable. But as we see in John's revelation of Jesus, he is victorious. He is radiating power and brilliance. And he has come to bring you life. The reigning king on the throne wants to give you the gift of life. Jesus has paid the price. And now we faithfully wait as fellow faithful witnesses, not to what Jesus is going to do, what Jesus has already done. That's why tonight we wanted to start with this. We wanted to go back to Jesus so that we could spend this semester with the heartbeat of our community about the good news of Jesus over everything else. There are a lot of good and important things that we talk about here in university, but the gospel of Jesus is the core and absolute most important thing. We want everything we do as a community and everything we talk about to flow out of our love and knowledge of Jesus, the real Jesus. And this is going to be a really great series uh, because the way we created it 
uh, is to take some of the things that we've talked about specifically in the fall and say, what, what does Jesus have to say about these? Why are we spending so much time talking about them? And so next week, we're going to be talking about what does Jesus have to say about ethnicity? What does it mean to actually pursue racial reconciliation that's modeled around the person of Jesus? And then we're going to go to Eva, and we're going to come back. We're going to ask the question, what is discipleship? What does Jesus himself have to say about discipleship? Is that just a thing that we've made up in modern Christianity? What is Jesus actually inviting us into with this? Um, and then we're going to conclude the fourth week talking about how Jesus is the hope in all these things. We've got some great speakers coming. Um, my friend Katie Yu from UVA is coming next week. David's going to be speaking. We've got the Dr. Reginald Davis from First Baptist Church of uh, Williamsburg coming to speak. Uh, we are so excited for this journey that we are about to start on. We really hope that you can commit to being here with us for the next four weeks so we can figure out as a community who is Jesus. We want to see him afresh. And I hope that tonight as you think through these questions, these Characteristics, these aspects that you might be able to surrender that faith, Jesus. We all pray with me. Lord, we want so desperately to know you more. Um, we want to pursue you. We want to know the truth. We want to be surrounded by the truth. And Lord, there's so many things that are distracting us. As Basola said earlier, Babylon, um, nation, America, idealism, like self-righteousness, power are all tempting us to see a distorted view of you, God. And so as you reveal Jesus more clearly to us, would you point us back to a heart for you? Would you remind us of who you really are, Lord? As we worship you, would you start to shift these things in our minds? Would we be able to shed ourselves with a false Jesus and take up the image of who you really are? Lord, we give this all to you.